keep bringing you down? Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 479. It is Wednesday, July 18th, 2010, and I am back from Big Bend National Park in Texas doing some work with my buddy Brian Black out there. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that uh, after we get through the housekeeping segment of the show. Today's show is going to be the show we would normally do on a Monday, a listener feedback show. I, I may have to start doing more of these shows than just one day a week because... The questions keep coming, and some of the questions are like, I really can't do that on the air, but a lot of them are really great questions and really thought-provoking and uh, really inform- a lot of great information as well as what's going on out there, some stuff that's really current events, but more timeless current events than political speak and the issue du jour or anything like that. So uh, I may do some more of these in the future and more of the call-in shows too because, um, you know, when I asked you guys to help me out with that, boy, you sure as heck did, and I sure got a lot of questions fast, so... We'll keep doing the topical shows where it's me and one topic at least a few times a week, but we maybe do more of these because I just want to help you guys, man. I I get so much from so many people. One thing about these question shows, though, folks, I want to remind you once again the right way to send me a question. Send me an email, and in the very beginning of the email, write your question in one to two sentences. Then give me all the background information you want. Some of you guys send me these emails that are like a book and a half, and then your question is buried somewhere in there. They don't get past my screening because I don't have time to spend that much time to screen the question to see where and when it's going to fit. So please condense your question into one to two sentences and get it above the book. I like the books. When I look at the question and I have certain things I need to know, I go into the books. But I can't read the books to find the question, folks. I'm sorry. I'm one man and I only have, you know, 24 hours of my day the way you guys do. And believe it or not, I actually do sleep. All right. Well, anyway, before we get into the topic of today's show and I tell you about our experiences out in Big Bend, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor the day number one. Ready-Made Resources, Bob Griswold uh, really runs a great company and really has a lot of great things for you there. I mean, they call it Ready-Made Resources. Why? Because that's what it is. It's Ready-Made Resources for all of your preparatory needs. Great stuff, including an awesome selection of 12-volt appliances for you know your little solar projects uh, and avoiding having to go through an inverter. And if you want to do full-scale solar, they have a catalog that is probably one of the best resources I've ever seen on solar energy and solar components. So make sure you download that from their website. Next up, check out MERS-radio.com. That's M-U-R-S and a dash radio.com. 
And uh, what you'll find there is a really unique setup of radio communication equipment that allows you to create a secondary communications uh, network around your home uh, that also integrates security so that you have motion detectors. Uh, when I first looked at MERS radio, I thought, well, that's kind of cool. When I got a set of MERS radios and a couple motion detectors and set them up and saw what it could do, then it really clicked for me. I think this is a great product and something you should definitely check out. Again, you're dealing with an owner who's going to make sure that things happen right for you. So check out MERSradio.com. Next up, the gear shop. Uh, we have shirts, we have hats, we have challenge coins, we have new stuff coming. We have a new gear shop site coming where you're going to be able to uh, kind of connect with each other on the gear shop and help us make the gear shop better for you. Siswell's checking that out and working on it for us right now. We also have our Survival Podcast branded French press mugs that make you coffee anywhere you go and even have a cool little hidden compartment to carry extra coffee or anything cool that you want down inside them. Uh, so check those out. I'm drinking coffee out of mine right now as I talk to you this morning and uh, I'm really proud of these. I think we ended up with uh, a few hiccups in the road on the way to getting these things done but they are absolutely gorgeous now that they're here. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Discounts from about 20 vendors. I'll tell you, there's a vendor or two back there that I need to remove I haven't done yet. Uh, one, because the code expired, and the other one, because they've changed their business model and can't do that for us anymore. Uh, that one is TerraPrints, so that is no longer available. I just haven't gotten around with being gone to removing them. But I do have some new ones coming in to take their place. So uh, hopefully anybody that wanted a sun oven or wanted to order from TerraPrints did that by now. So until I get those out, I just want to let you know those are no longer valid for discount codes. But as always, they keep adding and making the system better for you. It also is a way you support the show at 20 cents an episode. So when you get done listening to the show, if you think that was worth two dimes for my time, consider joining the MSB and you become a supporting member of the show. And I give you a huge return of investment with discounts to vendors, free ebooks, free videos, etc. All right. Let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Before I take any of your questions, I want to tell you about what I was doing out in Big Bend with Brian Black from ITS Tactical. Brian has put together a methodology for comparing uh, camo. Instead of getting people and saying, go hide the best that you can in the rocks, what he actually uses is a torso mannequin, uh, which I, messing with him the entire trip, called it his Ken doll because he was constantly dressing and undressing it, and put it into various situations with just the upper portion of the camo, the shirt, now, why do that? Why not have people try to you know, hide and use the camo? It's to create a controlled environment where every time that you see the camo, it's being compared in the exact same way. So we have 12 patterns at four locations shot at four different magnifications. And uh, it's going to be a really great project. He'll be working on that, I would say, for at least a week to get all that data together and distilled down uh, to publish that camo comparison. But it's going to be pretty freaking awesome. Um, but I wanted to tell you some of the, the, the comical side. I put a great write-up yesterday uh, on the blog about, you know, what it was like out there and some of our experience with one of the local restaurants and stuff. But I wanted to tell you what happened to us with the, the park security uh, and then later on the Border Patrol. Right about when we were done, and we'd been out there for two days, we went to the park office, we told them what we were going to be doing because we knew it might arouse suspicion. Apparently some p different people driving around visitors to the park saw us out there working and saw us with our big black bag dressing our mannequin, and then some other people saw us at the end where Brian was actually wearing some camouflage clothing for one other little side project and uh, called the park security and told them, there's guys running around with camouflage uniforms and a big black bag. 
So two park rangers came and uh, talked to us, and one was like kind of, I don't want to be a jerk, but he was really kind of a Barney Fife. And then the other guy was a, a prior service Marine, and he was actually interested in what we were doing. And we had him kind of like low-key and happy in about, oh, ten seconds. The other guy was on the radio and telling us, you know, you guys really need to do a better job of making sure we know what you're doing. Uh, you could be interrogated in this situation. And I know sometimes when people hear, like, you know, park rangers, you're thinking, like, you know, the people at the gate of the state park that are like an old retired person. You know, these guys were armed. I mean, they're dealing down there. They're close to the border. We understood that this could look this way. That's why we did it. But it was kind of ridiculous, honestly. Once they saw what we were doing, they're like, well, what's in the bag? We're like, here, open the bag. Here you go. There's a mannequin. Here's 12 different freaking camouflage shirts. You know, and the guy's still nosing around. And, what... and fortunately, the other guy was there because I think the first guy really could have been a problem. And, you know, it's, it's sad that you deal with people like that. So um, it was unfortunate. But it was, you know, it was at least it was like, you know, come on, guys. We're, we're, we're done. We want to go have a drink or two. We've been out here for two days. It's hot. We're full of cactus thorns. Come on, man. And uh, so they finally let us go. The guy checked my insurance and my license and stuff like that. We had to remind him to give our driver's licenses back, you know. At the end, he's like, well, you guys can go. But I was like, dude, how about our licenses? So then we drive about uh, 30 miles up towards uh, Marathon, maybe 40 miles to Marathon, uh, Texas. little cute little town uh, just north of Big Bend. Nothing between it and Big Bend, by the way. And uh, we get up there right before you get into town. They have a border checkpoint. And we had the bag in the back. And uh, Brian told them, they said, what's in that bag? You know, they're all looking in the truck and all. And he goes, uh, there's uh, clothing and a mannequin. I think they thought we had a small Mexican hidden in our bag. So we had to op open the bag for them. And what was interesting is there were uh, three guys circling the truck uh, from Border Patrol. And two of them were Mexican. I should say Hispanic. I can't tell you. One guy was definitely of Mexican descent. I mean, there was no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, they're asking us our nationality. Now, it was a little bit comical. But, hey, it was a great trip. We had a good time. And uh, really, check out the write-up I did, the photos I published. And definitely check out Brian's uh, review of these camo patterns once it's up. I think what he's doing is important because, and this is why we went to Big Bend. It is the closest terrain that we could find that resembled Afghanistan. And it is work that may someday influence decisions about what our troops will use in certain combat situations. So that's great for its overall thing. And I think hunters will learn a lot from it as well. So check that out. Certainly you gamers that play Airsoft will like it as well. All right. Let's go ahead and start taking your questions. Uh, I have a bunch of them queued up today. Let's start knocking them out. Here's the first one. Does anybody out there knows I have... Uh, a deep hatred of things like Monsanto and genetic engineering, especially some of the ways that it's being used that I consider abusive or short-sighted, and we don't really know what's going to happen to it as it gets into our environment. Well, now they're genetically modifying mosquitoes. I couldn't make this up. I never saw this one coming. I know some people think this apparently is a good idea. I'm just going to read this article to you and then tell you what I think. It's called The Malaria Proof Mosquito Engineered by Victoria Gill, science reporter for the BBC News. Scientists in the U.S. have succeeded in genetically engineering a malaria-resistant mosquito. The researchers from the University of Arizona introduced a gene that affected the insect's gut, meaning the malaria parasite could not develop. They report the report uh, they report the advance, which also reduced the insect's lifespan in the journal of PLOS Pathogens. They say the ultimate goal is to in introduce the malaria-resistant mosquitoes into the environment. 
Here's the part. Listen, guys. Before we do this, we have to somehow give the mosquitoes a competitive advantage over the disease-carrying insects, explained Professor Michael Rill of the University of Arizona, a principal investigator on the project. In the study, the researchers also altered a gene that codes for a signaling molecule. The molecule of protein enables the mosquito's cells to communicate with each other and is crucial for parasitic development inside the mosquito. The genetic tweak artificially increased its production, disrupting the whole process, and also shortened the insect's lifespan. Well, there's the competitive advantage down the road or down the hole. The team was able to add a fluorescent tag to the gene to ensure that it had been successfully expressed in quotes, by the mosquito larva. Professor Reel said, this is the first time we've been able to completely block the parasite from developing in the mosquito. Garth Lysett, a malaria researcher in Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine in the UK, said it was an important advance. They've tested it on the most harmful malaria parasites, uh, some Latin name I won't try to pronounce, he told BBC News. In another step, a uh, journey toward potentially assisting malaria control through GM mosquito release. But Dr. Lysett pointed out that this work has not been carried out specifically on the Anaholis jibani mosquito, the major vector of malaria in Africa where the disease is most prevalent, he explained. This study was a collaborative project between the University of California, Davis, and the University of Georgia, funded by the National Institutes of Health. So what's the problem, Jack? Why do we care that they genetically modified a mosquito? especially in a way that will make it not transmit malaria. Are you just some evil uh, freak that's all paranoid about man playing God and you want people to die of malaria versus doing something when we can? No, but I do think that maybe sometimes Hollywood's a little smarter than freaking science. Um, have you not seen Jurassic Park and other movies like that? Um, have you not read Michael Crichton's much better book than Jurassic Park, Prey? Um, when we start screwing around with the genetic code and doing things like giving one species a competitive advantage over another, and, and you know this is not even like the rabbit thing where they, the guy gave the rabbits a virus in Australia where they were not indigenous. This is an indigenous animal. Um, we don't really know what the repercussions are. Look, if we can make mosquitoes not transmit malaria in a safe way, I'm all for it. But here's basically what this article just said. We take the mosquito, we screw around with his DNA, and uh, we made it so the mosquito no longer transmits uh, this, this horrible, debilitating, awful disease, and it is. Uh, but then the mosquito actually has a shorter lifespan, so it has less of a competitive advantage. So now what we need to do is figure out another way to modify the mosquito, so that it will outpopulate all the other mosquitoes and take over the biosphere and reduce the number of mosquitoes out there and basically play God in the natural selection role. We'll make a more adaptable mosquito and it will take over. Okay, great. Um, and then that mosquito will become a much a super mosquito, if you will. In one way or another, the, the survival rate of the existing mosquito is not sufficient. This will be a mosquito that can survive even more. So what new disease might this new genetically modified mosquito that doesn't transmit malaria find for us? See, scientists need to remember that there's all kinds of crap out there that can kill us that we haven't even found yet. There's a disease called nymph. It was transmitted by fruit bats, yes, fruit bats, uh, in, uh, in Southeast Asia. Up until 1996, its existence wasn't even known. And it had a fatality rate over 65% of people infected with it. 
We have no idea what's going to happen if we take a mosquito and make it more powerful. It's the only way I can put it, more survivable. A, a, a better mosquito that doesn't transmit malaria. We don't know what the hell that's going to do. And here's the thing, folks. Once you release it, it's over. It's done. You know, it seemed like a good idea to take those African honeybees and bring them to the United States many, many years ago. You see how that works out. Folks, we just have to really pay attention to this stuff and be aware of it. Uh, thanks for sending that one, and let's go ahead and take another question. Oh, and of course, there will be a link to that story in today's show notes, so check out the blog. Let me hear your comments. What do you think of this genetically modified mosquito, guys? I'd like to hear what you guys think. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, Discovery Channel, this comes from, uh, let me see, who sent me this? person sent me this is named David. David says, sorry if this is the 100th email on this, but the colony is back. Haven't, uh, haven't heard you mention it yet. David, thank you. I didn't know the colony was coming back. For those who don't know what the colony is, last year Discovery released a show called The Colony, and I talked about probably about half of the episodes on it uh, on the show. And uh, I thought it was a good show. A lot of people didn't like it. They found it unrealistic. They found it to be too much of a garage uh, wars or something like that, or junkyard wars, because there was so much stuff that the guys were building and all. I actually thought it was very educational. I thought some of the characters in it were just complete freaking idiots, and uh, you know some of the things about it were a little bit hokey. But overall, I like the show. This season looks like it's going to be even better. The only thing I'm a little bit let down about is that Discovery is kind of sticking with the same theme. This is basically, the last episode was a flu pandemic, uh, wiped out L.A., and these guys were stuck in a warehouse in L.A. Well, this time it's like some biological thing that got released, so it's basically another pandemic. Now, from the, the scenes, it looked like they're going to do a better job selling the disaster to you. It's selling the disaster scenario to you, uh, so that's good. But I would have liked to have seen them do something different. Instead of let's do pandemic again, let's do... You know, let's do electrical failure. You know, let's do giant solar storm knocks out the entire global electrical grid. Because that would have asked new questions, right? And instead of just a new cast and a new, and a new scenario, uh, we would have had an entirely new um, environment, and entirely new questions to be asked. Now, what it does look like more is there are going to be more concerns about people that survived so far still becoming infected. So that's cool. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, this one's a little bit more worrisome to me than anything else. Um, when I watched the new trailer video, it invited me to participate in an online experiment and basically be part of the simulation and do that through Facebook. And I thought that was cool, and I figured it would be through a fan page, and they would have different actors playing people, communicating with you as though they were your sister stuck somewhere or whatever. But when I went to allow the application to access, it wanted access to my personal information, my family connections. It basically wanted access to every bit of information that's available as part of my Facebook profile. And I'm sure what it wanted to do then was contact every one of my friends and family and invite them into it, which is fine for viral marketing, but it's a bit too intrusive for me. So I want to know what you guys think of that Facebook application. Uh, if you're a Facebook user... Um, go so far as to, to open it and see what it's asking you for. And if you're not comfortable with it, and I'm, I'm telling you I'm not, deny access and, and close the window. Don't do it. But I want to hear from you guys. What do you guys think of Discovery? Creating, I, I like the online simulation thing, but 
to go ahead and impose this complete carte blanche of all your information and all your additional contacts information. Uh, I get the viral angle, but I don't like the privacy intrusion. I, I don't mind applications that say, invite as many of your friends as you would like to be part of this with you, but this carte blanche disturbs me. Um, now, there's nothing really in my Facebook profile that I really care if they know about me, but gaining access to all my contacts in, a, in a, you know, an instant carte blanche, that bothers me. That feels like kind of an invasion of my privacy. What do you guys think? Check out the colony. We're going to be, I'm going to be watching it and talking about it on the show. And uh, let me know what you think about this Facebook application they have. And if any of you have already done it and I'm misreading it, let me know. Again, you can do that by email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. But I'd prefer you do it on the blog, uh, you know, thesurvivalpodcast.com and today's show notes so that everybody else can partake in the conversation. Let's go ahead and take another one of your uh, emails. All right, changing things up, we have a uh, kind of a financial investment question here and one that I've answered before, but I'll keep answering this over and over again because... This question is one that so many people have, and I think this is an answer that so many people need to hear, and you're not going to hear it from your typical financial advisor, uh, financial planner, or anybody like that, especially if, like most Americans, you're in that middle-income bracket, and the guy that you're dealing with isn't you know, a CFA or a CFP or anything like that. He's not a guy that generally works with you know people that have a net worth of one million, two million or higher in, in value. You're dealing with a guy who went to school for a few months to learn relationship sales and basically puts a portfolio in front of you and says, do it. Um, the question is basically this. It's from a teacher, so there's a little bit of a difference in the plan, but it's basically a 401k or an IRA. You can look at them all the same way in the way I'm going to answer this. So Matthew says, I've been teaching for six years now, and many teachers have told me to put money in a 403b account. Is this a good idea during these times, or should I just take the money and put it aside? Thank you for your time. I'm new to this whole survival thing, but I love your stuff. Okay, Matthew, and everybody else out there listening that, that has any type of retirement account, I don't care if it's a 401k, a Roth, IRA, a you know, standard IRA, any of these accounts. Most financial advisors will tell you contribute 10 or 15, whatever number they decide is the, the number du jour, into that type of a savings account. And for a lot of people, that eats up all the money that they have for their savings. Okay, And uh, real quick, just a little bit on a 403B, which is a little different than a 401K. And in, in a lot of instances anymore, this doesn't even really apply because companies don't do this as much anymore. 4013Bs are for things like school teachers and other nonprofits. Your public school system doesn't operate at a profit, not that it could if it wanted to because it's probably completely incompetent. But in a 401k, it could be run by an employer. Let's say if you had a 401k with Exxon, they could offer you the ability to get profit sharing as part of your 401k. Uh, or to acquire company stock at a discount. There's a lot of things that can be done by a private employer that is for a profit versus a 4013B that they cannot do. But once the money's in there, for all intents and purposes, it works exactly the same as far as tax deferral and things like that. I am not one of these people that says that all of your money should be in gold and, 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 and goods and certain, you know, stuff like that and just buy food and buy, you know, storage stuff. Um, there's a place for that and it should be a portion of what you do. But I'm also of the belief that the advice that's being given to most Americans to just put all your money into a retirement account and wait till you're 59 and a half or 72, I think, is the new retirement age these ass clowns want to vote in. And whether or not that'll actually be, you know, legislated to focus on these plans, we'll see. 
Um, but right now, there's all kinds of talk about jacking around with these accounts in various ways, forcing you to buy T-bills at a certain point with a portion of your retirement, and I don't like that. I also don't like that you have to pay a penalty to get your money back. Now, I'm going to talk about Roth and a mistake I made in just a second, and Roth has another advantage that I wasn't really aware of, so I like if you have a choice between a Roth 401 or a Roth IRA. I've always said Roth, now I say that even more, but still, the, the money that you earn is interest even in a Roth, and all the money you put in a conventional, to get your own money back, you have to pay taxes and penalties on. That's not necessarily bad in and of itself if the money is designed for retirement age, post 59 and a half years of age. The problem is what happens 10 years from now when you need some money? Well, they say, well, you can borrow it from your account. Well, if you need to borrow money from yourself out of your retirement account, the odds of you paying it back in the 90-day window are almost zero in every situation. It would only be very select situations where it would work or if there's a qualified distribution. But I don't like having your money locked away. I like having some of my money locked away, not all of it. So what I'm basically going to tell you is if 10% is the amount of money you can save every month, and that's it. With all your scraping, your budgeting, your savings budget is 10%. Put about 5 into a 401 or an IRA or whatever, and put about 5 into whatever investments you want, but don't put in a tax-deferred investments. And the financial advisor said, but you're going to pay more taxes, but you're going to have access to your freaking money. Okay, and that is so, so critical. <clears throat> and you're going to have access to your money quickly. Because even with something like a 401 with a qualified distribution, there's a shitload of paperwork to fill out. It's not like just going down to the bank and pulling your money out. So I like keeping some of my money liquid. So I'm not against the 401 3B. I'm just saying don't that let that be everything that you're saving. I'm going to let it go there because I'm going to expand on this advice when I bring something to you that came in from one of our listeners that will remain anonymous due to his uh, position, we'll just say, and, and uh, cleared up my misunderstanding about the Roth. And a lot of you guys sent it in, but this guy was able to connect all the dots for me in the IRS publication. So we'll talk about that in a bit. Let's go ahead and take another question first. Okay, this next email comes from Teresa, and I'm going to summarize it, and I'm going to give you guys another request about when you send me questions. I, again, I need the question before the book. And when you write the book, please do things like hit return and put breaks in your paragraph. And don't compose in Word or whatever and paste in the email because I think that's what happened here. Because you get long, giant lines and then one word the next line. It makes it hard to read. And I, it makes it where it's too much work for me to read it on the air. But I liked this question in spite of that from Teresa. So uh, let me give you the synopsis. She's basically asked me, what do I think about states? And the title of her email is, what's a state to do? And she, so what do I think about states that are basically challenging the federal uh, authorities right now and some of their mandates? And, for instance, the Arizona immigration law, uh, several states standing up against the federal Real ID Act, and then the attempt by the Fed to enforce their mandates through things like highway dollars. So a highway, so a state has a certain amount of maintenance they have to do every year on their highway, and it's tremendously expensive. The federal government takes gas taxes uh, and other sources of revenue, often that come right from that state, but are paid directly to the Fed, and then makes a portion of it available back to the state for these plans. And what they'll say is, well, we want seatbelt laws in all 50 states. So if you don't have a seatbelt law or a child uh, seat law, for, you know, like for the the, uh, the child seats, child safety seats in your state, we won't give you your federal-backed uh, highway dollars and you'll be screwed. And what do I think about that? Well, here's what I think about it, first of all. What you're actually talking about is something called nullification. 
and it is a fundamental to a federal republic, that, and that is what we are. Every time somebody tells you this country is a democracy, they're not telling you a lie, they're telling you a half-truth. We are a democracy in that we elect our officials through a democratic process. But technically, China is a democracy. Technically, the Soviet Union was a democracy. Okay? Uh, and, and that doesn't really make for freedom. Freedom and democracy are not mutually inclusive of each other. A democracy simply means that we vote in some capacity on issues that affect the whole country. How that democracy is applied is actually the form of government. And in our case, our government is a republic. And that is a voluntary coalition of component parts. In our case, we call them states. And states in the Constitution are given the power to nullify anything the federal government does that the federal government is not directly empowered to do by the Constitution. And if there was any question about that, our founders realized that if there was a question, we needed to be clear, and they came up with something called the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution that said that the powers that are not expressly given to the federal government lie with the states or the people. Meaning if the state doesn't have the power, it goes down to the individual to choose whether or not it applies to their own life. So for the state to have to have a power, it has to be in the state's constitution. And that's when you say, does the, the, the state of Florida have the right to XYZ? Is it given to them in the Florida constitution? And does it not violate the federal constitution? See, it has to be constitutional under the federal constitution, and then it has to be given a power. That, you know, let's say the state of Florida wanted to pass a law that, that regulated free speech. Directly says we, all publications will be sent, you know, be uh, reviewed by government before published. You could pass a Florida constitutional amendment stating that Florida has that right, but since it is in direct conflict with the protections of the federal constitution, it would be unconstitutional federally. So federal supremacy would apply. However, if the federal government is not given a power. So, for instance, nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the federal government has the right to regulate um, whether or not a state will allow somebody in that state, period. It's not there. So if Arizona wants to say, hey, you know what, we're going to round up illegal immigrant immigrants and turn them over to federal authorities and let federal authorities do what they want with them, that's completely constitution, uh, constitutional. We can debate the ethics of that. If we want to. But we, it's really hard to debate the constitutionality of that. Especially when the two laws are synchronous. Now, I think that that's a hot button issue and maybe one that is not a good experiment for nullification uh, to explain it to the masses. I do think that, we, like the, the Real ID Act, you know what's happened to the three states that have said no? Nothing. I don't think the federal government has a lot of spine to step all over states right now, and I think it's an opportunity for states to start looking at some of the federal nonsense that doesn't belong being uh, pushed on its people. We have to be careful, though, because all government sucks when it really comes down to it. The bigger it gets, the more it sucks. And a lot of times if a state becomes empowered, they'll tend to actually turn around and do things that are more prohibitive than the federal government. Look at California with gun laws. Look at Chicago with gun laws. Look at New York City with gun laws. Right? Those are examples of the state saying we have this power and going too far with their power. 
So we have, for a federal republic to work, there has to be a working relationship between state government and federal government. But the state government has to have the integrity to stand up and say, to here you shall come and no further. This is the end. You don't have this power. So I love the concept of state nullification. I think we need to make sure that we're using it on issues, though, where the state has true constitutional grounding, either in their own constitution, actually within their own constitution, and within the federal constitution. Those two things have to be synchronous. And when the federal government does something that's not in the constitution, like, for instance, the health care bill, nowhere in the constitution does it empower the federal government to go in and mandate health insurance. Nowhere. And nowhere does it empower the federal government to push the cost of anything they want done to the states. So not only is the federal government mandating this health insurance crap, they've also taken a lot of the cost and they've pushed it into the state budgets and said, you guys have to do these things. So I think it's 34 or 33 states are currently suing the federal government over the health care bill on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. And even people that support the mandate have said the states may have a case and may in fact win this lawsuit. It's a matter of how long it'll take and how deep the apparatus will be by then, and that's why they're pushing hard for it. So I love the concept of state nullification. I just think we need to be careful with it so that we don't start thinking we can do things we can't with it, and we don't start trying to do everything through state nullification. But in any clear place, to me, where the federal government oversteps its grounds, your first call shouldn't be to your senator and Congress people that did it to you. It should be to your state senator and state representatives that have the power and, and probably the duty under your state's constitution to do something about it at a state level to nullify it. And if you want to push back the federal government, there's no better place to start than your state capital. Great question, very thought-provoking. Let's take another one. Okay, this next, this next uh, email is kind of interesting. It's more of a comment than a question, and I like it. It comes from a guy named Rob, and we won't use his last name because he said, please do not mention my last name on the air because the black helicopters are flying around my home right now. No, nah, I'm just kidding. Rob's a cool guy. Anyway, you missed one major point uh, in otherwise brilliant pro- podcast, and he's talking about episode 467. He says, what if insert bad thing event never happens? So that event, that uh, episode, guys, was, you know, won't you feel stupid if the world doesn't end? That's how the non-preppers often feel about us. Like, look at these guys doing all this crazy crap, and uh, what if nothing goes wrong? Aren't they going to feel stupid? And I had a lot of reasons why I know that's not the case. We're building a better life today. Well, Rob says, well, my wife and I are actually curious about the stuff anyway, and we're having fun. Even if we never need all the gear, supplies, and other tra- trappings, even if we never get lost in the woods, it ultimately doesn't matter. I still get a rush starting a fire with nothing more than a flint and steel like the early settlers did, even if it's just to get my grill going and cook some nice food. We have fun. Paranoia, fear, panic, and these things have no place in our home. Please do not mention my last name on the air. Thank you, Rob. Well, Rob... I completely agree. And I think that's another side of survivalism that maybe I need to do a whole show on enjoying surviving. You know, I mean, I think we always look at surviving as the tough times. And I've always said it's about improving your life even if nothing goes wrong. But there's actually a lot of the preparatory work is actually a lot of fun. And let's face it, if you're spending your time 
teaching yourself primitive fire-making skills in your backyard so that you can cook up some good black Angus steak, you're probably not going out to a restaurant and paying three times the cost of the same steak, and you're probably going to make it better, and yours is probably going to be made with grass-fed beef uh, or something you know the source of versus wherever the restaurant got the best deal that day. Uh, so there's a lot to be said for the healthy aspects of that lifestyle as well. But I find this stuff fun, too. I want to hear from you guys in comments on the blog today. Do you enjoy prepping? Is it actually pleasurable to you? I mean, I look at things like reloading. That's definitely a prepping activity, making sure that I have enough ammunition on supply, lowering the cost of it, building components together to make loads that aren't available off the store shelves for specific applications, such as low recoil or low noise signature, uh, things like that, or you know, enhancing accuracy. And when I sit down and reload, it's a very centering process for me because I'm you know, always going a million miles an hour and I have ADD. That brings me into this position where because what I'm doing is important and actually safety is at stake, I have to focus on that one activity. So I'm not thinking about my next show. I'm not thinking about what the ass clown said on, on the news yesterday. I'm not thinking about anything like that. I'm thinking about making sure that a specific number of grains of powder go into these cases and get loaded with a specific depth of, of the bullet. Gardening's the same thing. When I'm out there, I'm pulled out of being so into all the things that, that cloud my life. So, and, and then reading books on prepping and reading, uh, you know, kind of the, the survival fan fiction novels and stuff like that that bring a lot of good points up, that's enjoyable for me. When we just spent, you know, th two days out at Big Bend, and uh, tramping around in the cactuses and getting spines in our feet, but learning how you would survive in Big Bend. Even though we were out there doing, basically it was 100% a work trip, really. It really wasn't a recreation trip, other than the uh, drinks and dinner afterwards uh, of those two evenings. Um, when we were out there trouncing around, we were looking, what could we eat? Where could we find water? And realizing that actually as harsh as that environment seemed, it was pretty much full of life, food, and even though water wasn't everywhere, we could we even found some places where you could acquire water. So we looked at that and said, hey, we could hang out here for a week if we had to. <clears throat> Not going to do it with my wife because she's going to be you know wanting the camper and, and stuff like that and the air conditioner and the shower. But I enjoy that type of thing. When I was uh, just out of the Army before I came to Texas, I took a hike. I took a hike from central Pennsylvania uh, to the uh, to the state border uh, on the New York side on the Appalachian Trail. It was several hundred miles. And uh, basically was dropped off at one point and had some things dropped off at some checkpoints along the way for me and some resupply points. And uh, then was picked up uh, at a trailhead up by the New York border. Um, you know, that was an experience that lasted about a month. And a lot of people, I think, would have been miserable in that situation. But to me, it was absolute heaven. And I learned a lot about wilderness survival that, honestly, up to that point, had really been a little bit of the Army and some jungle training and uh, not really intensive survival training and being a hunter and a fisherman in Pennsylvania. And it put it into a whole new perspective for me. That was also very, very enjoyable. It also felt like kind of an accomplishment, too. You know, basically walking and, and placing feet on three states... And even though the piece of New Jersey that I walked through to get to the New York border was pretty short compared to the rest of the trip, and even though it's basically get to the New York side of the trail, and they, I'm kind of done now, um, it, it still was an accomplishment for me. Um, and it, it was uh, it was invigorating, and it was at a time in my life where I didn't know what to do with myself, you know. And, and it was 
it was it was something that I think I needed to do at that point, and it wasn't really a value of survivalism, but now it is because a lot of those experiences uh, I have now with me, and a certain confidence level from going through something like that and coming out the other end of it and being okay. Uh, those are things that kind of you carry with you for the rest of your life. So whether it's primitive skills in the bush or, or permaculture in the backyard, uh, or even you know things like when I get a bunch of food together and, and vacuum seal it and throw it in a bucket, I actually have fun doing that. There's very little that I do to prep that I don't enjoy. Some of the money I spend, I really wish I could do it without spending the money. I like keeping my, my money on hand. But as long as I'm converting it into something long-term valuable, I enjoy that as well. I enjoy doing the show every day and talking about it. I enjoy the research. And I want to know from you guys, how many of you people really enjoy prepping? How many of you, it's not just something you do for danger. It's not just something you do because of the affinity with other people that do it. It's not just something that you do uh, to make sure that you're okay and prepared for whatever comes your way. It's actually a part of your life because it's something you enjoy. I completely agree with that. And like I said, maybe we'll do a whole subject called The Joys of Being a Survivalist. Uh, I think that would make a cool show. So I'd like your feedback and your thoughts on that to help me prepare for that show. Let's go ahead and take another uh, one of your emails. Uh, this next one comes from a, a friend of mine over in Sweden that publishes a magazine called Interesting Times that, by the way, uh, I'll be appearing in as an interviewed guest uh, in an upcoming issue. Uh, he sent me an email, and all it said was one red paperclip and a link to this Wikipedia article, and then there's a guy's blog you can check out on it. But this illustrates the power of barter. And what would you say if I told you that a guy started um, in July 14th of 2005 And by July 5th of 2006, a little under one year later, he turned a paperclip into a two-story farmhouse. Well, let me tell you how he did it. This is what you call trading up, and it illustrates the power of barter. Uh, the guy's name is uh, McDonald. What's his first name? Kyle McDonald. And here's the timeline right out of Wikipedia. On July 14th, 2005, he went to Vancouver and traded the paperclip for a fish-shaped pen. He then traded the pen the same day for a hand-sculpted doorknob from Seattle, Washington, which he nicknamed Knob T. On July 25, 2005, he traveled to Amherst, Massachusetts with a friend to trade the Knob T for a Coleman camp stove with fuel. That's a good prepper item. Uh, then he got another prepper item. On September 24th, he went to San Clemente, California and traded the camp stove for a Honda generator. On November 16, 2005, he made a second and successful attempt after having a generator confiscated by the New York City Fire Department in Massmouth, Queens, to trade the generator for an instant party, which was an empty keg, an IOU for filling the keg with beer of the holder's choice, and a neon Budweiser sign. On December 8, 2005, he traded the instant party to Quebec comedian and radio personality Michael Barnett for a Ski-Doo snowmobile. Within a week of that, he traded the snowmobile for a two-person trip to Yakka, British Columbia in February 2006. On, uh, on or about January 7, 2006, the second person on the trip to Yakka traded Kyle a cube van for the privilege. So he got a two-person trip, and he traded only one side of it for a cube van, which is one of those box trucks, like a delivery truck you see running around. So basically he said, I'll take you with me. So he even got to go to that. That's, that's pretty cool. On February 22nd, he traded the cube van for a recording track with metal contract with Metalworks in Toronto. 
On April 11th, he traded the recording contract to Jody Nant for a year's rent in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, on April 26, 2006, he traded one year's rent in Phoenix, Arizona for one afternoon with Alice Cooper, the rock legend. On May 26, 2006, he traded one afternoon with Alice Cooper for a Kiss motorized snow globe. I guess it was a very valuable motorized snow globe of Kiss, the rock band. On or about June 2, 2006, he traded the Kiss motorized snow globe to Corbin Benson for a role in the film Donna on Demand. On July 5, 2006, he traded the movie role for a two-story farmhouse in Kipling, Saskatchewan. So there you go. A guy starts out with a single red paperclip, travels quite a bit to get it done, but a year later owns a house free and clear in Kipling, Saskatchewan. And it's not a mansion, but it's a nice little house. Now, can anybody do that? I don't know that you'd pull it off exactly the way or in the timeline he did, but it does say something about the power at barter. And for my friend, the editor of Interesting Times, hey man, thanks for sending that in. I have never heard of that before. And of course, I will put a link uh, to the guy's blog and uh, Interesting Times magazine and the wiki article on this in today's show notes. So check that out. And I'd like to hear what you guys think about that. How cool is that, that this guy was able to uh, to pull that off? I thought that was uh, one of the coolest things that I've uh, actually ever seen so uh check that out and let's uh let's let's uh hear back from you on what have you ever traded up to or traded up for how have you ever maybe gone to one a little event and done the trade blanket thing and started out with a knife and ended up with something really cool at the end of it by trading and trading back and things like that uh the power of barter is interesting and what can really be done with it with the right mindset. Okay, I promised you to talk about the 401k and the Roth thing, and the Roth IRA, Roth 401k and distributions. Uh, again, I'm not going to say who this person is. I'm just going to tell you what they told me, and I've checked into it, and it turns out that they're right. This says, Jack, if you pull up IRS Publication 590 and go to their number, page 67, read the right column, how do you figure the taxable part? Note this applies to the taxable part of a distribution that is not a qualified distribution. In Worksheet 2.3, I line items 7 through 15 back out the net contributions, net being all the contributions less previous distributions from the gross distribution. So you put into this worksheet how much money did you contribute minus how much money you've taken out in the past. If the number is zero or less than zero, it means you haven't depleted your net contributions yet. Therefore, as it says in line 16, zero becomes the tax taxable part of your distribution. That's pretty much what I said before, okay, on the tax part. So I acknowledge that in a Roth, you, even if you take the money out early, at any time, you don't pay tax on the money because you already did. There was a 10% early withdrawal penalty that I thought applied in a period under five years. Here's the rest of that. This is absolutely the way it works. The other thing this does is eliminate the holding period requirement of five years that was painstakingly calculated previously in the Qualified Distribution Worksheet. 
When all is said and done, the five years doesn't matter since you get to wipe out the taxable amounts of the distribution and anything would be subject to a holding period or pre-59.5 uh, penalties. In ordering nets, your contribution out of all of it and you enter zero on line 16 of the worksheet, he said I can call him if I have any questions. The guy knows what he's talking about. The big thing is he's done it for people before. And he's done it, and that's the important part. So, one thing at the end of disclaimer time, this is provided for informational purposes. I'm not a CPA, and do not provide tax advice. Rely on your CPA and other tax advisors for this guidance. So he's, he's, he's kind of covering his butt there, but, and I'm covering my butt with the same statement. But from everything I've looked at now, reading IRS Publication 590, which again, I will link to in today's show notes if you'd like to read it in full, what I've come up with is that I was in fact wrong that if you take out money at any time from a Roth investment and you fill the worksheet out properly and you get professional guidance to make sure you cover your ass, that you don't pay any withdrawal penalties or any interest penalties of any kind, shape, or form. So there you go. That changes things a bit for me. I'm a little more comfortable now with a bit of a heavier contribution to your Roth-style retirement investments. And now I have a bigger reason to advise you to, if you're going to have a retirement vehicle, put in the Roth. I've always said that the Roth always beats the conventional in return of investment if you're investing for any long, if you're like five years from retirement, you're starting a new account that's different. But this stuff where you tell a 21-year-old, well, you know, when you retire, you're in your uh, taxable uh uh, value will be lower. You know, you have less income, so you'll be at a lower tax rate than during your contribution period through your 20s, 30s, and 40s as you're coming up and making lots of money. Because, first of all, you're full of shit because you don't know what the, what the income tax is going to look like when that 21-year-old is 60. You have no idea what the income tax is going to look like at that point. You don't even know if it's going to be in its current form, so you're full of You don't know. Second of all, a 21-year-old's contribution within seven years should double with any fair interest rate and that'll happen several times so the portion of money that's being taxed upon withdrawal is larger but the fact that you could access the money without penalty at least the contribution portion of the of the money without penalty that's a huge advantage that I did not believe existed without some form of cost at least the 10% early withdrawal penalty so that now I am a thousand percent behind Always Roth, unless you have no other choice. Always Roth. Um, and also, maybe now if you had 10% and you said, well, I want to put 3 uh, into an account I can access without anything, and you know, 7 into the Roth, I'm a little more comfortable with that. My caveat, stay informed and pay attention to what these ass clowns in Washington, D.C. are looking at doing to these accounts. And if we get to a point where it looks like they're going to screw with it. Get your money out, even if there's a penalty. If it gets close, get it out. And this is the, the safeguard. Talk about nullification. Think about this. Congress is looking at you know, the potential to do things like when you turn a certain age, say, okay, Mrs. Smith, you have $500,000 in your 401k. Woohoo, good for you. And now you've reached retirement age and you're on Social Security and you're in some way supported by the state. So we have to look out for your best interest. So here's the deal. $250,000 of your money is now going to go into a United States Treasury note, whether you like it or not, and we will pay you a dividend off of that T-bill every month for the rest of your life, and we'll guarantee that. But I want my money. I want to buy a motorhome and travel across the country and use the other $250,000 to live off. No, I'm sorry, you can't do it. They're looking at crap like that. It hasn't happened. Now, here's the nullification part. They get close to it, 
Do you know how many people will say, screw the penalties and start liquidating? And you know what they have to do to liquidate? They have to sell the stock. They have to sell the mutual funds. They have to sell the bonds. Profit loss doesn't matter. You have to sell it, pay the penalties if there's any, or just take the money out. All the people that have reached retirement age will just liquidate, pull it out. What does that do to the stock market? Crumbles it. Now, they might even want to go back and buy back in. It could be the biggest insider trading operation on the planet. Everybody dumps, yanks, and goes back in at the same time. Uh, there's a lot of potential there to cost corporate America trillions and maybe pull some of that money back to America. It never would work out that way. never would be that organized. But it would definitely have a detrimental effect on the economy for all that money to get pulled out because a lot of people would not go back in. A lot of people would say, screw it, I've had enough of this. You know, and they'd go into some kind of safe annuity, or they just hold cash. Or some people would say, I, I, I've learned my lesson, and they put their money into a safe somewhere in their house. You know, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm saying that's the reaction people would have. So I think the biggest safeguard against the government screwing with retirement accounts is the fact that if they get close to doing it, a lot of people are going to start bailing. But pay attention, because you might need to bail. Because these idiots are idiots, and they've proven that over and over and over again. And they've proven that what you and I want doesn't matter. And I'll tell you what, I think it's time to go to Washington and start physically removing these people from their seats if they do what they've been talking about doing. I don't think they'll do it, but it would be outright theft of the wealth of the average American to do what I've just described. To take money that was invested under a certain set of conditions that were agreed upon by the government the investment uh, community, and the individuals, and change the conditions in midstream with one party wanting it and the other two resisting, It's it, that's actually, I would consider the government to be in a state of treason to do that. Again, I don't think it will happen, and if it does, here's what I think would happen. They'll grandfather existing accounts, and they'll go forward with new contributions under the new law, and it's still wrong, but at least you would know. But pay attention to what's going on. The big thing, do not leave any retirement or any investment of mutual funds or stocks or bonds, anything like that on autopilot. Pay attention to what the hell's going on. And there are times, like Mike Azer says, to take your boat, tie it to the dock, and wait it out. I don't know what's going to happen in the next year. I really don't. I'm still betting on the false recovery. I'm still seeing it. I still know something that the, 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 the news media is not telling you. Even Fox News kind of talks about it, but they don't really tell you the ramifications of it. Half of the stimulus has not been spent. Half. Half. And I'll tell you what, the current president is controlling that. And he's going to let the Congress people that did that bill for him fall on their swords. And then he is going to try to rise like a phoenix from the ashes and dump that money into the economy going into 2011. I've said that for a long time. The fact that the money still hasn't been spent tells you that I must be at least close to being right. Whether it's intentional or not, that's my opinion. But the fact is that money's not going to get dumped into the economy until after the election. They're not going to pass a new budget until after the election. And all of that spending is going to hopefully do the Keynesian thing and spur the economy on. And that's the bubble. I don't know, I, I'm beginning to doubt whether or not it'll work, but I'm telling you that's the intention. Look out for it, folks, and be prepared. That's what these clowns are going to do. And I can tell you the other side of it is nasty. It's create. It will be, uh, in essence, creating the largest fake bubble that ever existed. It'll make the real estate bubble look like a joke. 
Uh, it'll make uh, all of the things that we've gone through with the dot-com bust and everything in between look like a joke. Because unlike those things that actually left us something, this will leave us with nothing. Even the real estate bubble left us with houses that were, again, fairly or undervalued. The real estate was still there. The land was still there. The house was still there. The dot-com bust, a lot of companies went away, but we were left with giants and behemoths like Yahoo and Google and a whole slew of new platforms that turned into Web 2.0. You know, first with MySpace that waned off and then Facebook and then YouTube. Changed the dynamics of America. A government bubble produces nothing and has no underlying value. And once the money is spent and circulates for a while, it's gone. So whether or not they'll pull off the inflation, that's what they're trying to do. If they do, false recovery, bad side, uh, bad slide on the other side of it. If I'm wrong, they try to get the recovery. It flounders around for a while and a fall uh, without the recovery. Either one sucks. Be prepared. Uh, and do not leave your investments on autopilot, please. And remember, you do not have to liquidate a 401k. You don't have to pull your money out and pay any penalties to be safe. If you feel that you need to remove some of the risk in your 401k, your IRA, simply move to a money market or a short-term uh, you know, uh, safe bond fund. You can move the money around inside the vehicle, folks. Please remember that. How about a fun little light question for the last one today? Since we have a few minutes left, we'll pull another one out. Uh, this comes from Brent up in Canada, and he says, I just received my Excalibur 2500 and made a batch of beef jerky uh, with outside round. It turned out great. Can you use or recommend beef shoulder steak, boneless cross rib steak is what we call it in Canada. It goes on sale here for $1.99 a pound occasionally. Here's the thing with beef jerky. You can make beef jerky out of any piece of meat. The key is how lean is it and how much fat do you have to trim out of it. What you're looking for with beef to make jerky out of is beef that has the majority of its fat that is easily trimmed off and on the outside. If you end up with meat that's heavily marbled, it's generally not good jerky meat because fat and tallow turn into kind of this waxy, uh, not so enjoyable substance uh, when dried out and made into beef jerky. It kind of tastes like... Um, flavored candle wax and not really flavored in a very good way, at least as far as I'm concerned. Shoulder steak, I, you're, you know, really you're going to have to look at the cut of the meat. You're going to have to look at it. $1.99 a pound, even if you have to trim a lot of it off, I think you could make a hell of a lot of jerky for, let's say, you know, 40 bucks, Way more than you could buy in the store for 40 bucks, and you know its source. My thing is, if you buy, like, grass-fed beef, you're going to have a lower fat content naturally. And uh, you'll probably do better with cuts like that. But shoulder steak generally is pretty decent. I've seen some that's really kind of fat marbled, though, depending on you know what the cow was being fed and what the environment was. Up in Canada, you're probably going to have a lot more propensity for grass-fed cattle uh, just to begin with. So as long as the fat content's low, folks, you can make jerky and biltong out of just about any red meat. Uh, it doesn't really matter what the cut is. So... Again, just check the fat content by visually inspecting uh, the cuts themselves. And with that, I am going to wrap up today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'm always a little out of sync when I take a few days off. Uh, you need one of these shows like this to get back in the rhythm. Maybe tomorrow. I don't know what we're going to do tomorrow yet, but maybe I'll talk about the joys of being a prepper tomorrow. Uh, that kind of got me charged up a little bit today when I was talking about it, if you couldn't tell. Uh, and I do think being a prepper is a joy. I do think being involved with, with your own life and controlling it and being out of debt is a joy. 
I do think that having your garden beautifully producing food for you is joyful. And I think the activities that center around getting them th those things done are very enjoyable. I know one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life was writing a check to pay off the last, like, 18 payments of my truck in one check. That was pretty enjoyable. And uh, calling a credit card company that I'd done business with for, you know, seven years and at one time was $20,000 in debt with and saying, you know, we paid you guys off. I'd like to cancel my card. And listening to some guy in Bombay try to tell me why I shouldn't, that was pretty enjoyable as well. So I hope that there's many of those joyful things in your life as you prep. And with that, I'll say this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living.